This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 18, beginning at verse 35. Speaking of Jesus, it says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God may God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word good morning glad to be with you if you have your copy of God's word I would appreciate it if you have it open um, as I'll be looking repeatedly at the text itself and um, just walking through the Word of God together. Before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are great. We recognize that you are holy and all-powerful. We recognize that we are not. We admit our need and we come here in this place to sing your praises and to come to be filled up, to be strengthened, to be encouraged. Lord, we're thankful for your love for us, that in your plan, Father, you would send your own son to come into this world and to take on human flesh, to live a sinless life so that he could die for sinners, that he could go to our cross and bear our shame. Lord, we're celebratory of the fact that he did not continue to lay in the grave, but on the third day he rose again, proving that you did receive his payment on our behalf. And therefore, we rise because Christ rise. We are victorious because Jesus is victorious. And so, Lord, that brings great hope to us, and we are thankful for the gift and the love, Father, you have in that you have adopted us into your family. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience, your willingness to come and and to serve us is absolutely mind-blowing that God himself was willing to do what you did. So thank you, Jesus, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing conviction, empowering, enlightening, and equipping. Thank you that you continue to work in us, and as we long for glory and we long for that perfect change that will come, as we long for that day when Christ yet returns again, strengthen us, continue to work in us 
And so, Lord, we gather in this place and we sit under your word and we recognize that it is infallible, it is perfect, it's without error. And we need to come humbly and submit to it rather than expect you to submit to us. So, Lord, we pray that you would use your word, O Spirit, that you would apply the word, that we would be changed. That we would be made more and more in the image of our beloved Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. It's therefore, Lord, that I pray that my words would not be my own. I pray that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say because, Lord, I recognize the responsibility and the duty to stand behind this pulpit and to preach your word to your people. And, God, I pray that you would guard our ears and our hearts. Lord, those things that you wish to penetrate us, please do that work. We do not want to leave this place unchanged. We seek what you have promised, that your word never returns void. We hunger to know you better, to walk with you more faithfully, and to love you more deeply. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. When you find yourself in a desperate situation, you will open your mouth and you will cry out to God. When you find yourself in a desperate situation, you will open your mouth and you will cry out to God. The truth is that you will even find yourself willing to do some things that you would normally not be willing to do. Because once we understand our desperate situation, we, we recognize that we need help outside of ourselves. Last week, all if not, I should say most if not all of us, I, I'm supposing that many of us or all of us have either saw or heard what occurred, the Buffalo Bills football player, Damar Hamlin, whose heart stopped after a hit, dropped to the turf. The game was stopped, and it was at that moment that the world waited. We saw on our television sets the images of players gathering together, dropping to their knees, and praying, begging God for help. We saw it replayed again and again and again. Then I saw something absolutely amazing that I personally had never seen before. I saw a former player who turned commentator, Dan Orlovsky, actually stop his comments and he said, I want to pray right here and right now. Live on TV during a broadcast, individuals bowed their heads, they shut their eyes, and they listened as Dan prayed right there. I was absolutely amazed. See, faced with desperate situations, situations that are far beyond our control, these larger-than-life athletes quickly recognized their need to look outside of themselves. They needed to look up for help. How often is that true for us? To look outside of ourselves for help. Pastor and theologian Kevin DeYoung says, when we're in big trouble, we need to believe that God is prepared to do big things. Let me say that again. When we are in big trouble, we need to believe that God is prepared to do big things. Those athletes that Sunday recognized that they were looking for God to do something big. 
Many of them maybe even declared themselves to be atheistic or agnostic, saying they couldn't know for sure if there was a God, but there they were when the situation arose to drop to their knees and prayers were offered. Cries were made, and the world saw it. The world saw that when man truly has nowhere else to go, he is forced to look up. Friends, that's true for each and every one of us in this room. Truth is, we all have a time, a place, a circumstance where we have been required to cry out to God for help. Our text shows us such a setting. The setting is the place of Jericho, and the individual is a blind beggar. This blind beggar is sitting on the road and he's doing what so many others are doing. He's begging. He's, he's asking for money. He has no way to make any uh, money himself through any type of occupation. So there he sits along the roadside gathering funds from those passerbys who would be willing to donate. And this just happened to be a very popular time. It was the time of Passover as people were making the trek to Jerusalem. So you can imagine that there were many beggars out and about. They were looking for those devout individuals who would actually give alms to the poor. That's the setting. The Gospel of Mark actually tells us the name of this beggar. His name is Bartimaeus. And it's interesting that Mark tells us his name because Mark wants us to know this is a real, true story. And yet Luke is doing something else. By not sharing the name, Luke is saying this could be any one of you. There's a universality to this story. This blind man, Bartimaeus, is begging. And he hears the crowd go by but it sounds unusual, it sounds more busy, even too busy and too commotion-oriented, different from any other Passover he had experienced. So he begins to ask a question. He says, what does all this mean? He's saying, what is all this commotion about? What's happening? You can imagine he's getting louder and louder as he's asking the question, and finally some people respond in verse 37 where they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. To which the blind beggar cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The church don't miss his response. And I don't just mean the cry for mercy, I mean the way he comes and acknowledges Jesus. When he asked what was going on, he was told very clearly that what was going on was simply this. Jesus of Nazareth, that man, the good prophet, the teacher, you know the guy. People are kind of amazed by him. He's even done some miraculous things. That guy, the son of Joseph, the, the son of Mary, the one who came from Nazareth, that's him. But that's not how the blind beggar responded. No, the blind beggar responds, Jesus, son of David. Jesus, son of David. The church, there's a key here. And it opens up this passage as we understand that the blind man is actually seeing what others do not see. The blind man knows this isn't just any old human. 
It's not just a man from any old town. The one who is there walking is the son of David. He is the promised Messiah. What's ironic is that Jesus' own disciples don't fully comprehend. Jump back just a few verses. You come to verse 34. It says, they did not grasp what he said. What did Jesus say? Jesus had said, I'd come to die. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. But on the third day, I'll raise again. The disciples had no understanding of what Jesus meant by these words. Yet here, this blind man, hearing that Jesus of Nazareth is walking by, screams out, Son of David, promised one, Messiah, have mercy. See, the blind man sees what others are missing. He recognizes that Jesus truly is the promised one. And along with the the promised one comes some special gifts and abilities promised in the book of Isaiah that were especially important to this blind man. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, referring to the promised man, listen to what it says. The promised one would open the eyes of the blind. This was a big deal for Bartimaeus. A blind beggar realizes this is his opportunity. He's now coming face to face with the promised one, the one who has the ability and the power to change his situation. And he will not be quiet. He cries out, recognizing that Jesus has the power. Ironically, back in John 9 and Mark 8, we're told that Jesus already healed a man born blind. Maybe the news had gotten to Bartimaeus. Maybe he was treasuring that. If he could just have an opportunity to encounter the son of David, he too, his life could be changed forever. And here it was. The opportunity presented himself, although others didn't see it that way. He surely did. Son of David, have mercy, was his cry. And as he cried, notice the people's response. They rebuked him. They told him to be silent. They said, basically, shut up. It's a harsh response to a man who's trying to get the attention of a miracle worker. Maybe they rejected the beggars identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe that's why they told him to shut up. Uh, Maybe they simply didn't believe Jesus should be bothered by such a man like this beggar. Whatever the reason, they told the beggar, shut up. Church, how often is the truth of Jesus hushed in our surroundings? How often is the truth of Jesus put to the side and told to be quiet, to sit politely and don't say a word? Yet when that football player fell, the world took notice of where everyone ran. They ran to the heavens. No longer would he be hushed. And neither would the blind beggar. For hearing the crowd say to him, shut up, he cried out all the more, believing and trusting in Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. See, the bottom line is he truly trusted that Jesus had the power to help him, didn't he? 
He truly believed that, just like those football players truly believed that someone in heaven had the power to help their fallen friend. The book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 13, says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This blind beggar was crying out. This blind beggar was making it known that he believed Jesus to be the Messiah, and he believed Jesus to have the power to change his life, and he recognized he needed mercy. That day, he spoke wisdom. book of Proverbs and the very first proverb verse 21 says wisdom at the head of the noisy street cries out wisdom cries out even on a noisy street I picture that right there in our text the wisdom of a blind beggar who knows who Jesus is knows his power and knows that he needs Jesus to touch him See, the blind man truly shows how wise he was regarding the truth of Christ. But what about you, my friend? How wise are you regarding your need for the mercy of the Son of David? How wise are you truly in understanding you need Jesus Christ to change your life? Story continues as we're told that Jesus actually stopped. You can imagine the procession. You can imagine the commotion and the noise. And Jesus hears this man crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes to a complete stop. But Jesus doesn't just stop. Jesus actually commands something absolutely amazing. For whatever reason, when the people were shutting him up, Jesus is taking notice. Jesus commands that the blind beggar be brought to him. Church, this teaches us a very important point. Jesus doesn't want to ever miss an opportunity to what? To deal and help with the most people who are viewed as unimportant. The unimportant people matter to Jesus. Didn't we already learn that regarding the children that the disciples tried to push away back in verse 6 of the same chapter? And yet Jesus told those disciples, let the little children come unto me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. See, it's the most unlikely ones that Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is for. It's not for the rich and the powerful. Simply, it's for those who are overlooked, neglected, ignored. Jesus commands that the overlooked blind beggar be brought to him. And when the man is led to Jesus, because, again, he is blind, Jesus asks him a question. In verse 41, we read, what do you want? That seems like a silly question. <laughs> Come on, Jesus, you're, you're the all-knowing one. <laughs> Can't you see that I'm blind? <laughs> it may seem like a silly question to us. But maybe this was an opportunity for this man's faith in Christ to be declared to all. And maybe this was an opportunity for this man to admit his need publicly of Christ and Jesus was making the opportunity. And so the man responds in verse 41. I want you to look at his response. He says, Lord, 
let me recover my sight. Two words I want you to notice is first, he identifies Jesus as Lord. He's not just simply recognizing that Jesus has the power, but Jesus is the master, the owner of the world, even the owner of himself. And yet he also asks that his sight would be recovered, meaning he once had it. For someone to once see color and to see the beauty of the world or maybe to see the smiling faces of his family and for all that to go black and be gone. Can you imagine the felt of loss? Maybe it's greater than the person who never had sight in the first place. But his request is made very specific. Lord, you who are powerful, you who are master, you who run the world, let me recover my sight. To which Jesus responds, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Literally, the text says your faith has saved you. This is an important point. This is teaching us that our faith is a conduit to the power of Jesus. Now, some have abused this text. It said the reason certain people aren't healed is they they lack faith. But what it's showing us is that faith is the way in which God uses to draw his power into us. Faith is necessary for salvation. Faith is necessary because faith is the conduit of the power of God. But there's something else here. The healing miracles of Jesus are pictures. Every time Jesus heals someone, he's showing us the glorious salvation described in a future day. Our faith is a conduit to the power of Jesus. Faith, is the, uh, uh, faith has an object, and that object matters. Uh, the Westminster Confession, our own statement of faith, uh, in Catechism Question 86, describes faith when it says this, faith in Christ is a saving grace. It's saying faith is a gift. It's, it's a grace. It's not something earned but given. Faith is in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. But then it goes on to say, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation. Trusting, resting, laying on Jesus. That's the picture. To further bring this to understanding, I'll quote an old theologian I much love, B.B. Warfield. He says, it is Christ who saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith, in Christ himself. That's where our salvation is found. And that's what Bartimaeus experienced. His faith in Christ saved him. Faith was the conduit. Faith is required. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, a man who brought his son to Jesus said, I believe, but help my unbelief, because he recognized faith was the conduit. Friends, Jesus has come. And Jesus has come to meet our needs. And yes, we already established our greatest need is the eternal situation we face because of sin and the brokenness of this world. Our spiritual need is ever before us. Sin has taken over the planet. And yet, there is one who's come and nailed that sin to the cross. 
And that's what Jesus described in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. Three times he reminded his people again and again of why he came to deal with death. To bring salvation. To meet our needs. And yes, he has come to meet our needs. And yes, our greatest need is our spiritual need. But understand this, church, Jesus also meets our other needs. We see this in the story. Jesus meets our emotional needs. He did not ignore this man, this beggar on the street. Jesus paid attention to him. Jesus called him forward. Jesus listened to him. Jesus met him right where he was at. And yes, Jesus not only meets our spiritual needs and not only our emotional needs, Jesus also meets our physical needs. The blind man experienced this as he was regaining sight. The psalmist in Psalm 23 tells us how we are cared for by a good shepherd. He doesn't just care for our spiritual needs or our emotional needs, but also even our physical needs. So church, let us not limit the Lord's ability to simply the spiritual. Faith in Christ is a means for the help we all need, and we must cry out. Yet let's be honest, this doesn't mean that things will go as we always expect. It doesn't mean that if things don't go our way, we didn't have enough faith. It means that our faith needs to trust our Lord, because he always does what is best. That's important, especially when you have to go to the hospital and face those who are being, going from this life to the next. The recognition that God is good and he can be trusted. So church, I ask you this question. Where or in what or should I say in whom is your faith placed? Understand this. Today we are being told it must be placed squarely in Jesus. Jesus Christ, Son of David, the promised Messiah. He is and must be the object of your faith. For in Jesus there is salvation. And outside of Jesus, only death. The story doesn't just end with the man being healed and going his own merry way. No, we're immediately told that the beggar recovered his sight in verse 43. And then it goes on to say, and then he followed Christ. He followed Christ glorifying him. Church, don't miss that. He followed Christ. He gave his life and, and dedicated his life solely to be a disciple of Jesus. And his life was committed to glorifying God. See, this idea of discipleship is important. We are not only redeemed to go live any old way we want. We're redeemed so that we can live for Jesus. We're redeemed to follow Christ. He saved us unto himself. That's what Luke says in Luke 14, 27 when he quotes Jesus. Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, the man who saw when no one else could see 
when he recognized that Jesus wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth, but the son of David. He was placing his trust in Christ. He was now committing his life to Christ. And as a follower of Christ, his goal was to glorify. His goal was to make much of Jesus, to sing Jesus' praises. As Psalm 107 verse 2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those who he has redeemed from trouble, we have a responsibility to sing his praises, to say it out loud. Because look what happens as an effect when we do this. The ending of verse 43, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. We're to be his witnesses. We're to go out and declare the good news of Jesus, who he is and why he came and how he truly has changed everything. As one man once said, it was just a blind beggar pointing other blind beggars to where they could find food. And church, that's our job. We're all spiritually blind. And yet, through the work of the Holy Spirit, as he applies the work of Christ to our lives through faith, we're forever changed. And our spiritual eyes are opened. And we now have been given a responsibility to give our lives fully to Christ and to sing his praises. Why? So that others would sing along as well. The church, I ask you, are you truly following Jesus? The way it's described here is one who's truly following Jesus. His heart and his mouth is full of Christ's praise. Is your heart and your mouth full of Christ's praise? It needs to be. Because the bottom line is this. We all find ourselves in places where we need help. Help beyond ourselves. We all need to come to a place where we recognize Christ and his power We need to understand that we're called to trust him no matter what. And we're called to follow him and praise him. We're called to make much of the son of David who has had mercy on us. How ungrateful it is if this man was redeemed and eyesight returned and he just turned away and went back to living the way he always lived before. But he didn't. He's an example of what it means to truly be changed, to be transformed. The psalmist in Psalm 34 calls us to the same purpose. The psalmist says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord. Make much of the Lord with me. He recognizes that as, 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 as important as it is to have an individual, personal relationship with the Lord, the necessity of the fellowship of the saints for the encouragement, one another, and lifting the Lord up together. He goes on to say in Psalm 34, verse 4, let us exalt his name together. Let us praise his name together. Church, did you ever think about that's what we do when we sing? That's what we do when we pray? That's what we do when we sit under the word? We're magnifying the Lord together. We're also magnifying the Lord together when we're encouraging each other to live for Jesus. When we're calling each other and saying, missed you at fellowship, brother. I notice you haven't been at Bible study in a while. I love you, and I want you here. I need you to praise the Lord with me. 
Friends, that's what we need. We need each other. And we all need Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from this text, may we be truly impacted in Christ's interaction with this blind beggar. For Lord, we recognize that we all are blind beggars. And Lord, we are reminded how often things are spinning out of control for us. that is beyond our control. And Lord, we are reminded at times like the event that took place in that football game of how only you are truly in charge. And so we bow a knee to you. We confess our need of you. We recognize that you and you alone are God. And Lord, we cry out to you because we know that you take interest even in us. And we're blown away by that truth. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your song. May we sing your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.